0: Hey crew, before we get started today, I wanted to let you know what's coming up in the near future for the show. We'll be taping a live episode of the podcast at Convergence Con in Minneapolis this Friday. This is our third year at Convergence, and it's a really great con. I love going there. Uh, I'll be out and about at the show doing some paneling and talking about films and comic books and, of course, Star Trek. So if you see me there, make sure you say hi. The subject of our live show this year is Star Trek 2009. Oh yeah, we're pulling on all the stops on this one. We're going to have some prizes and some merch we'll be giving away at the panel. So if you're going to be at the con, don't miss it. It's at 5 p.m. Central Time. This Friday, July 5th, in room Greenway FG. If you're at the show, you'll know what that means, hopefully. If you're not going to be at that show, no big deal. You can still watch the panel live on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash EISTpod. And you can comment on the video while it's live. Why am I telling you? You know how this works. We'll be taking questions from the audience during the panel, and I will try to integrate any Facebook questions we get. Uh, You can also Tweet us uh, during the show or tweet at us at at E-I-S-T pod. Speak up. If you like the Kelvin Universe films, if you don't like the Kelvin Universe films, doesn't matter. Weigh in. Give us what you got. All right. Today I'm talking to David Mack, author of a million and two Star Trek novels. To be precise, this counts as a standard episode related show, but since he wrote the episode that we're talking about today, we're going to do it a little differently, and Dave and I talk about the process of the show going from idea to script to screen, and he has been a great guest in the past, he's still a great guest, so I hope you enjoy our talk. Just a note, this episode was recorded soon after the finale of season two of Star Trek Discovery, so there might be slight spoilers ...for the end of Disco Season 2, if you haven't seen it yet, so spoiler zone alert. Incidentally, Dave will be at the Shore Leave Convention in the Baltimore area the weekend after next, as will many Star Trek authors, uh, writers, and personalities, many of whom have graced the ones and zeros of this podcast. And we, that is, enterprising individuals, will be there too... I'm excited to get a chance to finally go to Shore Leave. I've heard a lot about it, and it sounds like a great convention. This is their 41st year, so they're doing something right. I will be talking with some of those authors and guests when I'm at the show, and I'll probably do a a mini-episode or something like that when I'm at the con. And there will definitely be a supplemental episode all about Shore Leave once I get back, so stay tuned for that. Okay, that is it. Enjoy my talk with David Mack. Tune in at 5 p.m. this Friday on Facebook. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet Hello Frequency is open and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, aka Caliban, and I'm going to need you to pay attention because there is a test later. I'm joined once again on this episode by New York Times bestselling author David Mack, who has written over 30 Star Trek novels, short stories, and novellas, as well as the Deep Space Nine episodes, Starship Down and It's Only a Paper Moon. Dave also writes non-trek fiction. His latest novel, The Iron Codex, is the second entry in the Dark Arts series and is available now. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be here. It's great to have you back again. Today we'll be talking about Starship Down, the seventh episode of the fourth season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And we'll be doing things a bit differently today. It's not often that I get a chance to talk about an episode of Star Trek with the person who actually wrote it. And since I've got one half of the team behind the creation of Starship Down, we'll be talking about the experience of writing for Trek, developing an idea for the screen, getting to play with Trek characters and Trek actors, and more. We'll talk about that a little later in the show First, David, at the time of this recording, Star Trek Discovery has just finished its second season. A mm-hmm. Picard show is currently in production. A Section 31 show is in the process of development, along with several animated series. 21st Century Trek is in full bloom, but are we at the particular fullness of time for Trek to come back in strength? Why now? Do you see the franchise continuing to expand?
1: I have absolutely no idea. Nobody tells me anything. <laughs>
0: Exactly. Okay. Great. Great. <laughs> uh, are you happy with the expansion of Trek right now?
1: Uh, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, I, I was interesting because I got to work a little bit behind the scenes on season one yeah. of Discovery. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mostly because I was writing the first tie-in novel based on the series. Right. And so it was decided that I needed to have access to certain information, and uh, as a result, I was seeing all the scripts. And I was able to provide notes on those scripts via Kirsten Beyer, who at the time was the staff writer on Discovery. And so I felt like I got to have a little bit of uh, input. And then, of course, with the second season, uh, because I was not working on anything directly Discovery-related on the tie-in side, it was decided that there was no need for me to remain on the distribution list, so they took me off. Mm. So I... Didn't really know much about what was coming in season two, aside from what Kirsten told me behind the scenes. So I didn't really get to have any input on season two, but it's interesting in that the season in which I had no direct input uh, seems to have... Inadvertently uh, picked up a number of ideas from my work and reimagined them for Discovery. Yeah, specifically. I mean, you've got
0: a Section 31 novel called Control, which features an AI taking over Section 31, and that pretty much is uh, a very major subplot in the season, a second season of Discovery.
1: And I'm told that that was coincidental, that uh, the name Control, which in terms of its relationship to intelligence services, has some basis in... Real world uh, intelligence community organization, sure, and w- and which was featured in uh, John Le Carre novels such as Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, mm. that was most likely the same source of inspiration for the Discovery writers as it was for me, sure. and as it was for the. Uh, creators of the sort of classic comedy TV series, Get Smart, who parodied that notion by calling their organization control. Right, right. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people don't know that when they hear control, they think Get Smart. In fact, Get Smart got it from John LeCarré, who got it from the actual intelligence community. Sure. Uh, I mean, so it's interesting that we arrived at similar conclusions, although our outcomes are very different. Yeah. With regard to control.
0: Uh, Having written the first Discovery tie-in novel, Desperate Hours, uh, some of the uh, character details and bios that you created for the book shows up on screen. Uh, Is that interactivity going to be a feature of the new world of CBS All Access Trek and the uh, Discovery novels? Or is the
1: flow of influence from books to screen or screen to books generally just one way? Well, in the past, it used to be one way. Mm -hmm. I think it's becoming a little more reciprocal. And although... Many of the canonical details that were established in season two, particularly with regard to Burnham, her relationship with Spock, her youth, um, how she grew up, etc. Many of the details established in season two override what I was told when I was writing book one. Okay, and so many of the details I put into book one. Have been knocked out of continuity by canon revelations in season two. Sure. However, at the same time, uh, they tried to seed some of those details they knew they were working on into subsequent uh, discovery novels, such as *Fear Itself* by James Swallow or right. *The Weight of the Stars* by Una McCormick. And in fact, from my it's my understanding that the back and forth between Una and Kirsten behind the scenes, uh, helped inform some of the details that made their way into season two regarding, uh, Tilly. So I think that process is continuing, but it should always be taken with a grain of salt. The show is always, the show will always take precedence over the tie-ins. The tie-ins are the tip of the tail. They don't wag the tail or even the dog.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right, right. The fact that they're coming out so concurrently, though, I think it's cool if they're trying to set it up as them being kind of beta plus canon and being in a position where they can give curious readers a specific specific place to go
1: to to get more depth on those characters. What's interesting, though, is that the Discovery novels to date have all been prequels because the Mm -hmm. continuity on the series itself (laughs) is so tight and it really leaves no blank spaces into which one can comfortably drop a new narrative using the characters as they exist in the show. Right. So those of us who write the Discovery tie-in novels are forced to think in terms of biographical stories that delve into the characters' past. Uh, that's really the only place we can go uh, yeah. without stepping uh, you know, on, on their toes. Mm-hmm.
0: You've got a sequel to Control coming out later this year entitled Collateral Damage, which will focus on Captain Picard. Now, I know that talking to you about your work in progress is like reading the Mueller report. Uh, lots of things are redacted here. But can, of we, can we expect any parallels between what you're writing for Picard and what we may see on the new Picard series? No.
1: Okay. Um, it's my understanding that uh, when the new Picard series hits in December, it will probably blow... The entire shared literary continuity of the Star Trek novels that we've been working on for the last 16 years sure. out of the water. It will be a full broadside of torpedoes and the ship will go down in flames. Sure. <laughs> now, uh,
0: Another universe has already experienced something like this, uh, Star Wars, and their response Mm -hmm. to this was to create the on-screen sort of canon version and then the Legends version, which is all the collected books and comics and stories that have come before uh, can be appreciated, as they should, as side stories or different stories, but not really being connected necessarily to the future of the uh, filmic franchise. Is that what we're looking at with uh,
1: Star Trek TV? Well, it's less extreme in that The problem that Star Wars had, especially back in the late 90s through the uh, early 2000s and up until the point where the new movies started to come out, was that they had been telling people the books were canon or at the very least they were soft canon or a level of canon. They had levels of canon. And as a result, the readers of the books and the comics had come to have this expectation that the stories they were being told were. We're going to be respected in terms of the on-screen continuity. Mm-hmm. Should that ever happen again? Yeah. And then the moment they went back to making films and TV series like Clone Wars and Rebels, um, well, that all went out the window. And they those fans found out the hard way that ions uh, do not drive the parent franchise. Right. And because Star Wars had created that expectation that there was a level of canonicity in those works, when they had to walk it back, the fans were quite annoyed with them. Yeah. By contrast, Star Trek has never made that promise. Star Trek has always been very explicit, even though some fans just never seem to get it through their head the difference between canon and continuity. sure. They sure. have always been told from the very beginning, no Star Trek tie-in material is canon. Not the games, not the comics, not the novels. It doesn't matter who wrote it. It doesn't matter that Jerry Taylor wrote Mosaic. It doesn't matter that Shatner wrote a bunch of novels with Gar and Judy Reeve Stevens. Right. None of that matters. The books, the games, the comics, not canon. Never have been. Now, canon simply means, in the context of Star Trek, or usually in the context of, say, a religious uh, body of work, right. the core, <laughs> the core body of work which constitutes the accepted, uh, non-apocryphal heart of, you know, whatever the concept is, in this case, the Star Trek franchise. And it has always been established and has long been the policy of CBS that what is Star Trek canon is live action filmed episodes and feature films uh, officially produced by CBS or by whoever the current license holder was for Star Trek at that time, going back to the original series Next gen, the spin offs, uh, the feature films, and to a lesser degree, the animated series. The animated series, even though it was on television, for a long time has been treated as soft canon. Sure. Uh, I think that we have been seeing a softening on that because there are many of us who write the Star Trek novels who have a deep love for the animated series, having watched it as kids and having had it imprint upon us like ducklings <laughs> upon our, you know, apparent duck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so. In the novels, we have integrated elements, characters, species, events, bits of uh, character lore from the animated series into the literary continuity. Um, And what we've had going on in the Star Trek novels since around 2003, since shortly, maybe a year after Nemesis uh, went out of theaters, is a shared continuity within the books across all the different franchises from original series to Next Gen, all the other 24th series, DS9, Voyager, including Enterprise, and then including the literary original series, such as Peter David's New Frontier series, Michael Dan Friedman's Stargazer books, uh, the Vanguard series that I created with Marco Palmieri and wrote with Kevin Delmore and Dayton Ward, uh, and so on and so on. And the Voyager relaunch, the DS9 relaunch, they've all had a shared Literary continuity, where we've tried to make certain that when we could, right. the uh, events that would happen to a character would have lasting consequences and would be reflected in the narratives of subsequent books. And that required a, a high degree of coordination between the editors and all the authors working on those books. It required authors to talk to each other a lot offline and sometimes in medias res while working on various books. Mm. Uh, sometimes storylines had to be coordinated between authors to run over three or four different books over the course of two years or three years. Uh, we've also coordinated on a number of multi book series. And so in that respect, we run a little bit like a writer's room and have been, uh, for about 15 or 16 years. And we were able to do that because at the time, after Nemesis, it seemed like, well, Next Gen's probably never coming back. It's Mm -hmm. over. It's done. Uh, They're not making any more feature films. They're not going to bring them back to TV. There were, you know, at the time there was no talk of even new feature films. Uh, You know, the 2009 uh, Star Trek feature film wasn't even a gleam in anybody's eye at that point. (laughs) Or a flare. (laughs) right? Or it wasn't even a lens flare in anybody's (laughs) eye at that point. And uh, so we were given a certain degree of carte blanche to alter the status quo of characters' lives, to have some characters die off, have others undergo uh, big changes or radical alterations of their career tracks. And I thought it made for very dynamic, interesting storytelling uh, that kept readers engaged because they suddenly realized, hey – we can do just about anything now, right? These characters, you know, aren't going to be put back in the box with the other toys exactly as you found them. There's going to be changes. And I feel like that made for some uh, rather uh, challenging fiction. It, it, it made for some interesting ideas uh, that I think otherwise might not have gotten uh, a chance to exist. And so we're all very proud of this shared literary creation we've had going but one of the uh, downsides to this revival of Star Trek on television, as wonderful as it is, and I'm glad to see it happening, one of the downsides for us who write the tie-in materials is that our shared literary continuity is going to be a casualty of this mm-hmm. uh, because they're going to inevitably start establishing backstory details, especially on the Picard show, which is going to be set, you know, ahead of our continuity in the 24th century. Right. Um they're going to start establishing details that radically conflict with what we established in the books because the TV writers are trying to tell their own stories. They have their own dramatic needs and those needs have to come first. They're the show and they've got to call the shots and we have to follow their lead. So one of the things we have to expect is that starting around the end of this year, Uh, either the continuity we've been working on is just going to stop and we're going to have to shift gears and start writing books in the new continuity, or we're going to have to find some way to reconcile the changeover of continuity from one to the other. Um, so we haven't really decided yet. There's been no firm decision that I know of for exactly how or when. To deal with this but I can tell it's coming
0: yeah well in terms of then of collateral damage and any other books you might be doing going forward are you already thinking about a way to sort of wind down or to um, wrap up your contributions
1: uh, in continuity to what you've written for the books there have been some conversations in the case of collateral damage this was more about really getting into the nitty-gritty of the fallout of the revelations that occurred in my book, section 31, control, right. In which, you know, spoiler alert, um, for those of you out there who have not (laughs) read it, uh, the ending of the book is essentially about, you know, Bashir sacrifices everything in his long running quest to expose and take down 31 and he succeeds, but at a terrible price. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it costs him pretty much everything, his career, uh, his reputation, uh, the woman he loves, and eventually his own sanity. I mean, it takes him takes him out of the game for a while. We don't know yet if Bashir's ever going to recover mm-hmm. from what was done to him in that book. Mm-hmm. And so, but the fallout of exposing Thirty One, all of its crimes, all the dirty things it's done, all the conspiracies it's been involved in over two centuries. The fact that a a you know a sociopathic artificial superintelligence has been running the Federation like a surveillance society for over 200 years (laughs) and has infiltrated every single piece of technology from your communicators, your replicators, your traffic control systems, your comm networks. And it basically is capable of watching and monitoring everybody and everything and killing people off independently when (laughs) it has to. Right. This is a revelation that shocks the people of the Federation to their core. I mean, it's like, you know, Mueller report times 50. Right. This would be like finding out that the United States has been being run by a demon living underneath the Pentagon, (laughs) you know, uh, or or living underneath the white house, like since the days of George Washington. And you go, what?
0: Yeah.
1: A demon has been running the country for 250 years. Yeah. What? Yeah. And and it, it changes your entire conceptual notion of what you're, nation is what your civilization is what your society is and so the people of the federation are dealing with that after control and one of the things that comes out and this is one of the fun things about this is that there was a storyline we did back when we started the shared literary continuity back in 2004 it was my first two full-length paperback novels a time to kill and a time to heal they were part of a nine book series referred to as a time to and the purpose of that nine book series was to chronicle the year in the life of the Enterprise crew in the year leading up to the movie Nemesis so that we could understand why they underwent such a massive change in all of their status quo from where we saw them in Insurrection mm-hmm. to where we found them in Nemesis. How did Worf go from being you know, the ambassador to Kronos that he was appointed to at the end of DS9 to back on the Enterprise bridge, right? Why did Riker and Troy finally decide to get married? Why did Riker finally decide to accept his own command? Uh, what's going on with Data? Uh, all these sort of questions, you know. How did this status quo get totally upended? Sure. Which, well, that's that was the purpose of the a Time Two books, and my two entries, which were books seven and eight of this nine book series, were pretty much uh, a not so thinly veiled critique of the 2003 U S invasion and occupation of Iraq. Mm. And it sets up this whole sort of, uh, the first book time to kill is a fast paced military techno thriller. And it's basically about the enterprise crew has to conquer this planet called Tesla, which has basically been getting uppity because it's got some, pretty powerful super-secret weapons it got from the Federation during the Dominion War that it really shouldn't have, and it just used them to kill 6,000 Klingons. Mm -hmm. And we've got to get involved before the Klingons find out that those were our weapons that killed their people. So we do that, and then A Time to Heal is all about the cover-up, and you find out that the cover-up goes to the top levels of the Federation government, it goes right to the office of the president that there's criminal conspiracies, they're involving criminal elements like the Orion Syndicate to cover up what they did. Mm. It involves murder, blackmail, uh, you know, war crimes. I mean, it's just, it's horrendous. And by the end of it, our characters are put in the untenable position of having to say, well, what the hell are we supposed to do about it? And Picard, you know, having his officers have dug up all this evidence, He does the only thing he can do. He goes to the ranking diplomatic officer of the Federation on the planet, the ambassador, shows her the evidence. She says, well, we should really talk to your superior officers. So they set up a call because, you know, she would do it herself. She says, but you found all the evidence. I need you there to present the evidence. So they set up a call, you know, via subspace with five admirals, five high-level admirals. And they basically all decide, and one of them is Admiral Ross, who we know from DS9 is in bed with Section 31. Right. They decide the president, Min Zaif, has to go. And if he won't go, he has to be told it's not an option. And this is pretty dangerous territory. You know, you're you know, you're veering into it's coupish. It's coup-ish. The military's not taking control of the government, but they're making it clear to a sitting president, you need to step down. Right. Or else, you know, and in exchange, we'll bury all the evidence of your war crimes. <laughs> right. So this is, you know, some pretty dark territory. But the alternative is if they expose him and try to take him down by legal methods in the open, they'll spark a war with the Klingons and billions could die. So what do you do? I mean, there's no right answer. There's no good answer to this problem. And so they take him out and they think they're going to send him off into retirement. What they don't know is that Zyfe, having very nearly brought the Federation to calamity, has so pissed off Section 31 that Section 31 takes custody of him after he resigns, and they assassinate him. And so now we've got this crime on the books to which Picard is an unwitting accessory. Right. And when Section 31 gets exposed in control, it all comes out. Now it's all out there. Now there's got to be a tribunal. And so the directive I got from Editorial was put Jean-Luc Picard on trial for what he did. <laughs> so there's two, there's two plots basically running in collateral damage. One goes back to the Borg invasion of my Destiny trilogy, and there's some fallout from that involving the Nausicaans that has come back to roost after all these years. And that was sort of my critique on uh, the way the U.S. bungled the recent uh, need to provide aid to Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And then the the other sort of equal time plot is Picard, facing what's called an Article 32 hearing. It's a military version of a preliminary hearing. Its purpose is to determine if there is sufficient evidence, uh, credible evidence, to proceed to a general court-martial. It's a trial before the trial. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's different rules of evidence, so I had to research how that all runs. So basically, collateral damage is about Picard on trial and uh, the Enterprise crew off doing its thing while Picard is stuck in a courtroom. Um, so that's how that all shook out. And the thing is, I mean, that's all basically part of tying up loose ends that have been sort of out there for 16 years or so, maybe 15 years of real time, uh, and six years or so of story time in the uh, shared continuity. Uh, maybe a little longer. Yeah. So that's where we're at, but we're not really yet prepared to deal with the burning down of the continuity in its entirety uh, to make way for the new continuity that will be brought by the Picard
0: show. Sure. And hopefully it can end positively because that all sounds really dark and a lot darker than what we generally see on screen in Trek. But I think it's likely what we could probably expect to get from the upcoming uh, Section 31 series. As somebody who's written a lot for Section 31, what would you like to see out of a on screen 31 series?
1: Well, I have to be a little circumspect about this. You're right in that I've actually written more about Section 31 in terms of words of narrative and plumbing the organization than anybody else who has ever written about Section 31, including the people who created it. Mm. Um, and I'm actually hoping that that will be enough to persuade uh, the lovely uh, Bowie Kim and Erica Lippold to maybe consider putting me in a chair in their writer's room one day. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, so so <laughs> any ideas I might have about where that would go first? I don't want to step on their idea because they're going to be the showrunners. They've already got their idea and I can tell that some of the seeds for that were planted uh, in last night's Discovery finale. Right, right. Uh, but I uh, I do have some ideas for how it could play out. Um, and I, I have always enjoyed writing espionage-style thrillers. And I've loved writing Section 31 stories with all the moral ambiguity that comes with them. I think as long as they remember that this is a morally ambiguous organization, that they are not supposed to be the heroes, yeah. that in many respects they are in fact an illegal operation. They think they're the heroes. They think they're doing good. But at some point they've lost their moral compass and they're going to have to realize that.
0: Yeah, and I can say something because I'll never write for this show, so it doesn't matter. But the, <laughs> the impression that I was getting uh, with, in as it pertains to Tyler was that or in an earlier episode, he seemed to think that he could change Section Thirty-One. Like he wanted to do it again, but do it right. And I would love to see. And again, this is very sort of dark and depressing for Trek. But I'd love to see somebody like him, who's really idealistic and kind of naive when you think about it, mm-hmm. just be t- torn down and destroyed by the things that he has to do in the day-to-day operations of a organization like that. I think a Giorgio, whether she's really evil Giorgio or like fun Giorgio. Uh, could handle it, but just watching him just get pulled down by all this crap that they have to do and totally losing sight of his like
1: his idealistic uh,
0: attitude about, oh, maybe we can do this better.
1: Well, as the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You, you start out wanting to do good and before you know it, you've slid down a slippery slope into you know horrendous evil. In fact, that was something I touched on in uh, – A Star Trek novel I wrote called Zero Sum Game, Hmm. which was part of the whole Section 31 arc that I was working on, in which Bashir is pulled into a Starfleet intelligence mission because he's genetically modified and they think he's got the best chance of going undercover in disguise into Breen society and blending in. Hmm. And the whole novel, once you really get into it, uh, is an indictment of the whole action spy thriller concept and the whole concept of good and evil. One of the things i tried to do with that book was flesh out the Breen society and the Breen people, uh, to sort of show you that they are not this monolithic evil that we were given in the show. Mm -hmm. And that in fact, you know, Bashir who thinks he's, you know, doing the hero's work, uh, When you really get down to it, he's doing some horrendous things in that book. He's killing hundreds of people, including civilians who were working on, you know, Breen civilians who were working on this military project. And he rationalizes it as, I've got to do this or the mission fails. But at the end of the day, the most sympathetic character in the book is a Breen engineer who was just trying to do his job and winds up, you know, getting killed with everybody else. Mm. Okay. Um, and, and so I basically, I make the most sympathetic characters in the book are the Breen who are getting killed. Yeah, right. And it was, and I did it on purpose. The whole point is that the people you think of as heroes and the people you think of are, as villains, it's all completely relative. That's, I think, a theme for a Section 31 show. Yeah.
0: Well, this episode that we're talking about today is uh, not quite as dark uh, as that in terms of theme. Uh, it's, of course, Starship Down. Uh, season four of DS9 is presented as an interlude of sorts in the run of DS9, it introduces Worf and the conflict with the Klingons and sidelines Uh the Bajoran and the Cardassian politics that would later occupy the Dominion War arc. And for that reason, I feel like it gets passed over a lot. I feel like it doesn't get mentioned in the same breath as later seasons of the show. But at this point, the show, like most Trek shows at this point, has gotten very good at what it does. And I think that Uh it's a season that's full of solid hours of Trek. And this is one of them. And other than the inclusion of... um, the gemitar in in this case you know there's nothing that really anchors this episode specifically to the 4th season it's just a solid and entertaining ensemble piece uh and that really st- stands out i think as one of the great standalone episodes of ds9 and that's that's why i wanted to talk about it
1: well wow, that's high praise i'm not sure it qualifies as one of the great episodes of ds9 unless we're being <laughs> very expansive in our definition uh it's certainly not up there with uh you know in the in the pale moonlight or uh, the visitor or anything like that. But I mean it, it it held its own, I think, in terms of just action quotient and being a fun hour uh of T V and it you know was up against you know, or it was in the mix with certain episodes like Our Man Bashir and Rejoined, which are great episodes. Mm-hmm. I mean just just fabulous episodes. Yeah. Little Green Men, I think, aired either <laughs> the week before or the week after. Right after, yeah. Right. So I mean, it was part of a season that for me that was DS nine firing on all thrusters. It hadn't yet, uh, bogged down into the dominion war that would dominate, uh, from like late season five through the end of the series. Sure. Um, it was at a point in the show where they were past their growing pains and they were still able to have fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the whole thing started out as just, you know, a simple action pitch. Uh, I just wanted to do an action oriented episode Um, and it all started with, you know, I just watched the movie Das Boat, the director's edition. (laughs) And, uh, the next day I was stuck in traffic on the BQE with my writing partner, John Ordover. And I looked at John and I said, I want to sink the defiant. And he said, okay, what's the story? And off the top of my head, I just start railing off this, uh, story, you know, simple idea there. In the Gamma Quadrant to negotiate some sort of a trade deal, the Gemadar attack, we use the atmosphere of a gas giant uh, to simulate an underwater environment. It turns into a submarine battle. Uh, damage mounts, casualties mount. Uh, we're hanging on by a thread and it's just like Das boat where you know you're you know you you think you're sunk, you fight your way back from the bottom, you come out victorious and then you you break the surface and you head for home. And he's like, okay, uh let's uh let's figure out what the you know character beats are and what's uh driving the engine of it and we'll put it on the pitch list and then I went out to uh you know a vacation and I wrote up uh, a, a more detailed treatment of it and then eventually we had our phone call where we pitched it and they they loved it based on the the elevator pitch we said uh defiant does Das boat we sink the defiant they go that's great, tell me more." And we hooked them with that one right off the bat from the first call. Uh, And they were like, sold. We'll buy that one. I'm like, all right. (laughs) Um,
0: Now, at this point, are you in a position where you can, uh, within reason,
1: just sort of call them up and pitch them things? Well, it was an interesting situation that led to me and John working together in the first place. Uh, I started submitting spec scripts. When uh, Next Gen had its open door policy starting after season two. Right, right. Which is roughly 1988. Right. At the time, I was in NYU film school. Mm-hmm. And so I was trained in screenwriting and teleplay writing. And I thought, for, and you know, lifelong Star Trek fan, I thought I could do this. So I wrote a bunch of scripts and I'd submit them one at a time and I'd collect my rejection letters and I'd write another one and get another <laughs> rejection letter. And I did this for years uh, never got out of the slush pile on TNG and I kept going cause they kept the same policy in place on DS nine and I'd submit and I'd get my rejection and I'd try again. And I had another writing partner who I worked with for a time and that didn't work out. And I finally went solo and I was developing some ideas this would have been around 93, 94, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my best friend from college at the time started going to this regular Wednesday lunch of publishing professionals from the science fiction and fantasy, uh, publishing industry in New York. And he said, you know, you should really start coming to this lunch. There's editors there, other writers, there's agents, there's people you could meet It'd be a good networking opportunity. He sure. says, including this guy, John Ordover, who at the time was one of the editors acquiring for Star Trek fiction at mm-hmm. Simon and Schuster. Mm-hmm. So I go to this lunch, uh, thinking, you know, I'm going to pitch John a Star Trek novel. And I'm pretty sure I've got the greatest idea for a Star Trek novel that's ever been. And I go and uh, I meet him at lunch and he says he'll you know, bring me a copy of the writer's guidelines for the novel. So I keep working on my pitch. I go the next week. He gives me the guidelines. I take them home. I read the guidelines for the Star Trek novels. You know, For people who have never sold a Star Trek novel before, there are very strict guidelines for spec submissions. Mm. Or at least there were at that time. And I went through them and I, I kid you not. I discovered I had violated every single thing <laughs> they tell you not to do. Like they—they they have a bullet list that fills a whole page of. Here's what we don't want to see. We don't want the following, and bullet point by bullet point all the way down the page. I went, yeah, yeah, did that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got that, yeah. And,
0: and these are things like, like don't introduce like, oh, Breaker's brother members. comes on. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah.
1: Like don't introduce new family members. We uh, were, we're tired of time travel unless there's a really good reason for it. <laughs> uh, don't kill off any existing characters. Don't do this, don't do that. We're not interested in stories about this. We're not interested in war stories, this, that the other thing. And it's just this grocery list of things that they absolutely did not want to see in a pitch, and I hit every <laughs> single one. And I was like, I'm a savant. This is amazing. I don't know how I did I'm this. Doing something right. Well, <laughs> we're doing something really wrong. So I took my I took my pitch and I threw it in the trash. I uh well, I deleted the files and then I burned all the hard copies so that it could never be found and used against oh, me. Oh no. <laughs> I'm serious. I burned those pages. They they're never coming back. And uh I kept going to lunch though. And I kept working on my spec scripts for D S nine and I would tell John about them and He would say, oh, well, actually, you know, I'm on the script distribution list at the Star Trek books office. And five weeks from now, they're doing this in an episode. So you probably don't want to do that with your script because they're going to step all over it in continuity. I go, oh, that's a good note. Thanks for telling me that. (laughs) Sure. And at one point he looked at me and he said, weren't you going to give me a a pitch for a Star Trek novel? I said, I was. And then I read your writer's guidelines. I found out I violated every single thing you said not to do. (laughs) And I just decided not to waste your time with it. He looked at me and he said, you know, there are professional writers who are not that considerate. <laughs> and that led to me and John becoming friends. And then at one point, uh, you know, a couple months later, he's continuing to give me feedback on these spec script ideas of mine. And at one point, like I'm, I'm showing him the script and we're talking about it and he's giving me notes on every page. And I go, you know, if you're going to give me this many damn notes, we might as well just write the thing together. Right. And he, go, and he goes, and dead serious. He goes, why don't we? I went, what do you mean? He says, well says, here's the thing that drives me crazy. He says, I've got an open invitation to pick up the phone to the producers and pitch whenever I feel like it. And I could sell a story and maybe make a few thousand dollars, get a story credit if I'm lucky. He says, but I don't know anything about how to write a screenplay. I get them every day. I read them. I don't know how to write them. I I don't have the patience for this. I go, well, that's what I'm trained for. That's my degree. And I was like, so you've got the access and I've got the training. You know, if we teamed up, chocolate and peanut butter, this could work. So we team (laughs) up, and I put us through our paces. I know that the rules at that time were for freelancers. If you pitch a story as a freelancer and they say, all right, we're going to buy it. Uh, You know, here's the outline. Uh, We've agreed this is the outline for the story. Here's the beat sheet for the story. I knew what all these things were. Mm -hmm. Once your beat sheet is locked and everybody has agreed that's the structure of the story, go write the script, you have two weeks from that day – to turn in your manuscript. Okay. So I knew these were the rules. So I would go through the process with John. I'd say, all right, let's argue out a story outline. Now let's argue it into a beat outline form and talk about how it falls into an act by act structure. And I'd say, all right, we're locked. We have two weeks from today to produce what we consider as a professional quality teleplay. Sure. I'm going to go to work and I'll get you pages for editorial notes. We did this three times. Just to prove to ourselves that we could do it consistently okay. and produce quality product, okay. Uh, we did that three times before we scheduled a pitch, so yeah. we were confident that we had our it's our like act time together. trials. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we wanted to make sure that we were going to be ready. That if we got the call, we weren't going to fumble it, right? Uh, you know, in front of everybody, right? So we we had our our working relationship worked out. He got us the pitch meeting. Our first call was to Voyager. We made a sale off the bat in that first call. Sure. And then we had the call a a week later with DS9, and they said, uh, we'll take Starship down. And there was another one. They said, uh, we we like that one, but we're not sure what to do with it. They sat on it for three years. They eventually bought it. It became Paper Moon. Mm -hmm. uh, But that started out as something very different. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's how this all came together, was me and John just sort of becoming friends over lunch. He had access. I had the training. We basically trained ourselves to make sure we were ready to work at a professional level if we got the opportunity. And then we just, we got lucky on our first couple of pitches and then unfortunately never got that lucky again. Yeah, well, <laughs> I guess that happens. I love
0: the, the setup and the the whole situation of the episode because whenever Trek leans into its naval roots, um, I really enjoy that sort of thing. Like when we get um, a similar situation to this in Balance of Terror, which evokes the idea of a World War II sub- submarine movie or, or something like Wrath of Khan. Mm-hmm. Um, I love those situations. And also, I also love the innovation of making it uh, a gas. Giant. I mean, we're we're lousy with ships hiding or fighting in nebulas in Trek, and mm-hmm. it's the high pressure atmosphere of a gas giant. It does really feel like the deep water of space to me. That sort of threat that you've got in these sub battles, where we can't go too low, you know, or we're we'll mm-hmm. crushed. So yeah. I just thought
1: that was a really great uh, uh, adaptation. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved those episodes myself. Balance of Terror was always one of my favorites. Wrath of Khan is a favorite, and of course, as I said. The whole thing was inspired by Das Boot, right? Uh, which is this classic German, uh, you know, film by uh, uh, Wolfgang Peterson, I believe, um, mm-hmm. and it's very much an anti-war movie, uh, you know, about the sort of just these guys who have to survive aboard a U-boat during World War II. Yeah, and uh, what I loved about the story, again, you know, I, I know enough about science to know that in space, a nebula is actually a pretty uh, tenuous mass it's yeah. not very dense you're not really going to be able to hide in a nebula despite what Star Trek has shown you right <laughs> you really you really you can. might not know
0: you were in a nebula if you were in a nebula yeah yeah
1: and in fact I knew and I knew I knew enough about the science of say gas giants to know that that high pressure atmosphere like it is gaseous at the uppermost levels but as you go deeper, uh, it not only becomes more like a fluid, right? And at some point, it becomes a liquid metal, superheated right. due to pressure and yes. friction. It's a remarkably deadly, dangerous environment, um, and it, it worked great on paper. Here was the problem, which we found out uh, all too late, is that simulating that incredibly dangerous environment realistically was beyond the capacity of a 1995 TV budget. Okay, <laughs> and so. The special effects in this episode, to be perfectly frank, do not live up to... The real threat that would be posed by a gas giant at the depths these guys were uh, going to—it sure. like, basically just looks like a smoke effect. Smoke is pouring into the. Co- yeah. Actually, <laughs> actually, what it would be would be the equivalent of molten lead pouring into your corridor. Right, but right. But they couldn't. Af- but they couldn't afford that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they didn't want to have you know their characters getting scorched down to their skeleton. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I thought that it came off uh, okay for a uh, syndicated TV show. Uh, on in the 90s um I, I thought it's kind of like the theater of imagination like I they get did what they could yeah yeah right and I get that we're sub we're subbing gas for water in this case you always have that classic scene in those submarine movies where a compartment is flood, yeah. flooding yeah and the captain
1: shut that hatch. You've you got shut it that's goes. an order
0: yeah the captain's yeah. got to make that we, call
1: least, we tried to have one of those it was in our like, one of our early or maybe our original draft and you know that got cut that didn't survive. Though there's. It's
0: sort of in the in this in the uh, what's on screen still because we get that. Oh,
1: there is a, there's a similar moment, but it it yeah. lacks all points, because with the gas, it just doesn't play. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know they did the best they could. They do well. And, <laughs> and, and it's our fault. I mean, I should have realized, you know, what we were dealing with, and I, I should have come up with something different. Yeah. Uh, I. Uh, but the problem was is that we weren't allowed to write the first draft but all subsequent rewrites were taken out of our hands and executed in the basically the panic mode that all TV shows get into. Sure. Once uh, to, to give you an idea of what the mood was like, when we turned in our script, precisely on time, uh, the response from supervising producer Hans Beimler was, oh, good, now the writing can start. <laughs> and that's the most heartbreaking thing you can ever hear as a writer. You've spent two weeks crafting and polishing your perfect draft. Yeah. And you're told, oh, good. Now the writing can start. Right, right. And, the, and all the rewrites were handled in-house by Renee Echevarria. And, uh, you know, I guess he was basically getting notes from everybody on staff, the showrunner, the other producers, the technical advisors. And he's got his own stuff he's trying to work on. He's got his own episodes he's trying to get written. And here he's stuck doing an uncredited series of like six or seven rewrites on this script from us. Um, and I imagine that couldn't have been very fun for him. And when rewrites like that happen, I mean, it does nothing wrong with your work necessarily, but it's
0: probably them rewriting it because they know the specs of their production and also trying to
1: bring... Yeah, it's the collaborative process of TV. It's You get the script, and even though we delivered exactly beat for beat what we were told to deliver... Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those things where once you sort of see it all laid out and you look at it, you go, yeah, that didn't play the way we thought it was going to. We need to change this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think one of the other concepts, uh, I forget who said it, but it was one of the guys on staff at the time. Uh, he gave a quote to either the DS9 companion or something else. I think it was the DS9 companion where he said, yeah, it was a a fantastic first draft. And if we'd had a hundred million dollars, we would have shot it. Okay. Sure. <laughs> uh, I, that's a great, that's a great movie. It's a great blockbuster movie. It's not a TV yeah. show. <laughs> they said, This is a great first draft. And if we'd had a hundred million dollars, we would have shot it. <laughs> um, and that was really the problem is we got overly ambitious with what we were trying to do. It was a great script. It worked terrific on paper, but it, uh, when the, you know, the actual budgeting team went through and said, do you have any idea what it'll cost to do this? This one shot, do you have any? This is the whole budget right here, a shot. (laughs) Yeah. You can't do this. And we thought we were pitching a bottle show, you know, with Simple Achievement Oh, yeah, sure. Little did we know... What we had done, we ended up burning through a ton of their money for this ridiculous thing. Well,
0: this was apparently one of the first Trek episodes to heavily feature CGI Um, all the ships and clouds are computer generated. And I think that those exterior scenes look pretty, pretty good. There's a part when that second Gemini ship is destroyed and the gas clouds kind of puff out from the explosion and it looks really cool. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, they did some pretty good stuff with that. There were a few moments that were a little confusing, like the whole resolution of the episode, the action sequence with finding the, uh, you know, the the Bowie that lures in the Jem'Hadar and sets mm-hmm. them up so that our heroes can pounce on them from behind. The problem was is that the plan was never adequately explained because they were trying to have it be a surprise, but at the same time, they wanted it to be clear. They tried to have their cake and eat it too, and as a result, the first time I ever watched that sequence... It was very confusing. I'm like, and, and, and there were a lot of people watching the episode with me and John as it was broadcast, and we all had the same reaction, which was, "What just happened? <laughs> right. What, what did they do? What was that thing? Was that our thing or their thing? What the was that? How did that happen? What was that?
0: I guess they won. Yeah. I guess
1: we won. We're <laughs> alive. They're dead. Okay. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> uh, so there were there were confusing moments. I mean, some bits of it work better than others. You've got the whole. Uh, Dax and uh, Bashir stuck in the turbo lift thing and having to cuddle, for which I've always felt Alexander Siddig should have sent me a thank you note. <laughs> sure, <laughs> he yeah. never has. He's never thanked me, not once. <laughs> That's ungrateful swine! Just grateful swine! <laughs> yeah. But I've always loved the bit. That, here, here's a funny tidbit from the, uh, the both the story pitch and the first draft. Sure, the uh, karma negotiator Hanuk, who was brilliantly played by James Cromwell, yes. Uh, that role was originally written as a woman, a female Karma, who was supposed to be flirting with Quark oh. as they're dealing with the diffusing of the torpedo. Okay. Uh, so that was all written originally for uh, a female character. And I guess a decision was either made that they didn't think that worked, and so they changed it to a male character to improve the uh, conflict between the characters so that there was somewhere better for them to go a resolution or a catharsis yeah. to their working relationship by the end of the episode right um so i mean there were a lot of changes that happened like that the other thing that drove me crazy and this is sort of an interesting parallel uh to uh discovery when we were in the room doing the break session or where we have like our original story pitch that we've given to them by phone we have our five or six page story breakdown that everybody in the room has mm. and you go in to break the episode and breaking the episode happens after you've sold the initial pitch Mm -hmm. and you've got maybe a five or six page story outline. That's when whoever's available from the writing team, you try to have the whole room if you can, but sometimes people are busy. They're working on their script and they can't be disturbed or whatever, but it was us. Iris Steven Baer, bear Hans Beimler, Robert Ewitt Wolf, Ron Moore. We're in the room with the big long whiteboard. And that's where you start breaking it down. Like, this is going to be the teaser. This is act one. This is going to be our stinger to go out of act one. Here's how we open act two. And you go act two, scene one. Here's how it breaks down. This is the idea for this scene. Oh, let's move that around. Actually, let's move that up. Actually, can we strike that? And you do this all day. It took us about a day or two to break the episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, And while we were in the room... And, and the, the, the story starts to mutate. This is where ideas start to get thrown out to say, hey, what if we did this? Or, hey, how about that? Hey, here's an idea. What if instead of this, we did that? Mm-hmm. And one thing they came up with was, uh, well, you know, we would like to have uh, a new co- sort of a command character who we're planning to develop, a guy named Tyler. Uh, the name Tyler apparently just keeps coming up in Star Trek for some reason. You know, we have this guy named Tyler we want you to work in. Uh, and John and I look at each other, we're like, Really, this guy we've never heard of, who's not one of your series regulars? Shouldn't we really be focusing more on Worf? I mean, Worf is your new addition, and we're gonna want to see how he. There you go. No, no, no. Don't worry about that. We we we've got this stuff over here for Worf, but we need you to do this with Tyler. We really want Tyler because it's gonna be about Tyler and Cisco, and this and we're like, all right, who the hell is Tyler? And I go, well, we haven't <laughs> cast him yet, yeah. but we have this great idea. We're gonna be doing this whole arc with Tyler. All right, so we write this thing. And, of course, we have the whole bit for Tyler, just as it's discussed in the room during the break. And by the time they've done the first rewrite, Tyler is gone. I out. <laughs> Tyler doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. Anyway. Tyler? Who the fuck is Tyler? What's this <laughs> guy doing here? We don't know who Tyler is. So uh, one of the other interesting things about Starship Down, uh, when Worf is dealing with O'Brien and the engineers, yes, this is one of the first explicit mentions in Star Trek canon that there are enlisted personnel on board. Right. right. Uh, there are not many explicit references to enlisted men, but the engineers, uh, played by F.G. Rio and another guy, uh, Stevens and Muniz, I think, are the, are the two guys. That's right. Uh, Stevens and Muniz are specifically described by Chief O'Brien, who's a, a non-commissioned officer. He describes them as, these are enlisted men. They didn't go to Starfleet Academy. Right. That's the first explicit mention we have, that there's essentially something like, starfleet boot camp there's Mm -hmm. starfleet basic training there's starfleet you know enlisted engineering there's you know enlisted men and then they move up to the petty officer ranks which of course you know obviously has to exist otherwise how do you get chief o'brien
0: so they are uh enlisted or are these just like uh tech tech contractors or something like that serving on the ship
1: tech contractor would be done differently that would be a chief warrant officer oh Navy uh, recruits, highly trained professionals for things like information warfare officers, uh, medical specialties, legal specialties, uh, techs. These guys are brought in. Usually they're promoted out of the uh, chief petty officer ranks. They go to officer training, and they come back as chief warrant officers. Okay, okay. Or you can be granted a warrant uh, by Starfleet or, in this case, the U.S. Navy mm-hmm. uh, for your technical specialty. There's usually There used to be four. There's now, again, five levels of chief warrant officer, uh, grade. They are considered officers, although technically in the military hierarchy, they rank below ensigns. Mm, Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Above chiefs, but below ensigns, they are highly trained technical specialists. They tend to be tasked with, uh, mission specific duties. Mm. Although in some cases they are tasked with training ensigns, uh, who are, you know, being prepared to serve as unrestricted line warfare officers. I always
0: like it when we get to see minor characters and they get lines like Muniz and and Stevens. And it's usually because I don't know what their plans would have been for Tyler, but it's usually because they're going to get gut shot like Muniz does later in the episode, The Ship. But it always
1: sad about that. Yeah, it
0: it does make the crew seem more real. And I feel like we get a lot of those um, extra characters in DS9.
1: Yeah, and it's fun, uh, a couple here's a couple of other fun notes. The character of Stevens, who was one of the enlisted engineers uh in this episode, later became a series regular character in the Star Trek literary series uh Corps of Engineers sure. created by John Ordover, my writing partner on this episode, and Keith R.A. De Candido, uh who was working as both an editor and an author for Star Trek at that time. And I ended up writing some of my first work in prose fiction was for core of engineers writing once again for this character among others uh who you know never appeared before in my episode so stevens uh gets to live on and in fact it was in the core of engineers series of ebooks that my first work of solo prose where i was working alone and not with a, a writing partner was called wildfire it was a short novel right and in many ways wildfire is what i wish starship down had been okay It is essentially a disaster story in which uh, our hero ship, the Da Vinci, is sent to go in and perform rescue and or salvage operations for a Starfleet ship that has gone missing during a technical or scientific research operation, the, the Orion. And the Orion's been lost in a gas giant. Right. This time, because I'm not restricted by a TV budget, I'm able to make that environment as horrific and as deadly (laughs) as it ought to be because I'm not worried about whether it costs a hundred million dollars anymore. Right. So now I've got, you know, superheated liquid metal surging through corridors, vaporizing crewmen on contact. (laughs) I've got the seal that hatch and you hear somebody getting, you know, crushed and vaporized on the other side of the hatch. I've got the ship stripped down to space frame. The captain loses his hand. Half the crew is killed. A major character dies at the end of it. Uh, I mean, it's just, and the whole thing is just unrelenting tragedy. It's just a brutal tragedy uh, that has maybe a little bit of a silver lining at the end, but it comes out, there's no happy ending. They spent the next four to eight books of the series dealing with the emotional aftermath and the post-traumatic disorder of the characters who survived it. Sure. So... And this was you know, where I got the nickname Angel of Death. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> but that, uh, but that uh, particular book grew out of my frustration with the limitations of what I couldn't do in Starship Down. Yeah. Did, did you know from the
0: start that you wanted it to be an ensemble
1: piece where the crew is paired off and they each sort of get their own story? Uh, yeah, I kind of had that feeling that that was where it was going to go because that's the classic paradigm of the submarine, mm-hmm. you know, the... the, 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 the the stranded submarine or the sunken submarine is the the
0: Poseidon adventure type thing. Yeah,
1: You've got your people cut off in different portions of the ship. So you've got your people on the, uh, the bridge or in the command information center who, you know, are trying to get answers out of anybody. They're trying to do what they can to save the ship, coordinate action, but they're cut off in their little area. Then you've got the guys who are trying to survive in an area that's slowly flooding, or then you've got the engineers who are trying to restore power. You've got the guys who are trying to get the torpedoes to actually load again. Right. Then you've got somebody who's stranded somewhere else and they don't know if somebody's going to find them before the air runs out. It's, it's a classic paradigm. Sure. Uh, and it allowed us to sort of take characters who, for whatever reason, had issues – and force them together. Uh, and it's the beginning of Warf learning to realize this is what it's going to mean to be in command. If you're going to actually command and wear command red, you've got to learn to do your job differently. Mm-hmm. You are not a just a security officer anymore. You're not just here to arrest people. Yeah. You're not here to investigate. If you're going to command, you got to know that this is about motivating people. It's about giving people confidence. It's about code switching. And learning to talk to enlisted men one way, a chief another, an officer another, and doing what you got to do to get everybody to work together. Yeah. So he's got his great storyline going on with Chief O'Brien. And it's sort of classic. Once again, a chief is training an officer, which is classic Navy. Right. Uh, And then the one storyline that kind of caught us a little out of the blue when it was pitched in the room, but we did our best with it, uh, is the whole bit with uh, Kira and Cisco and the head wound— I was not thrilled with the notion of taking Sisko, one of the most dynamic characters in the series and essentially taking him out of commission for the bulk of the episode. Mm -hmm. But I do have to appreciate what was found in pairing him off with Kira and Kira has to go from dealing with this guy who she kind of reveres as a semi religious figure. Right. uh, And suddenly she's got to relate to him as a man. It's just a, you know, as one person to another as he's lying there dying in front of her. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> having to work with him day in out uh day in and day
0: out it, it must be such a strange experience for her and I think I I think I read somebody describe it once as like working in Jesus's carpentry shop.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Jesus is your foreman in the, in, in a furniture shop.
0: Yeah, right, right.
1: That was an interesting relationship to sort of explore. Yeah.
0: And of those pairings, I think that uh, Hannock and Cork is probably my favorite one. Um, of course, you've mm-hmm. got two amazing uh, actors sharing the screen. And I, I, I it's my favorite Cork is the Cork who sometimes we see Cork be scared of new opportunity. We see him kind of screw up and he's got kind of a, a loser thing going on. But I like it when Cork is sort of riding the wave. And I like yeah. the fact that Hannock catches Cork basically cheating him and Cork just decides all right, this is it. You know, he caught me with my hand in the cookie jar, but I'm going to sell this guy. I'm Shelly Levine. You know, come on, risk. Yeah. Risk is fun. He's going to try to try to convert this guy. You know, sells to his him way on, of s- living.
1: He sells him on gambling.
0: Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And,
1: and he, but also because it's the only way they're going to survive with defusing the torpedo. Yes, that comes. From. And one of my favorite moments in the whole episode. I wish I had been the one who had actually written this exchange, but I have to give the credit to Renee. Uh, is when they're looking at the torpedo and they have the realization of, you know, uh, you know, I think Hannock says something about, you know, well, you got to do this and disconnect that. And he goes, how do you know so much about this torpedo? (laughs) Well, my people manufacture these or sell these to the Gemidar. And Quark looks at him and says, wasn't it supposed to explode on impact? (laughs) Do you think I should offer them a refund? (laughs) And they both, they look at each other and they just start to laugh. Right. Right. They cackle maniacally at each other because they both realize, you know, oh my God, this is so ridiculous. We're arguing over a torpedo that's sticking down and then it suddenly makes a change in its sound you know, and they both stop Whoa. laughing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a great scene. Uh, uh, go, it's really not funny. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, in last night's uh, season finale of Discovery, there was a scene where a torpedo has penetrated the ship and they have to deal with that.
1: God, they just keep raiding my toy I know, box. I know,
0: I know. we got to talk to somebody about it's this. Like they,
1: they, they keep doing the Dave Mack Greatest Hits show. Yeah. And, I don't, and I'm getting nothing here.
0: <laughs> I'm loving it, though. Uh, I think I read something from Keith somewhere where he said that he did a table read with you guys on an early draft of the script. Is that something that you like to do yes. to sound it out early on?
1: Yeah. In fact, uh, John and I thought that since we had done so much of our early collaboration and had formed our partnership over this Wednesday lunch, mm. which at that time would you know gather anywhere from uh you know 8 to 10 or even more uh people every week every Wednesday at this particular place we thought well why don't we bring this rough draft before we submit it uh these people all watch ds9 let's assign characters and let's do a table read at lunch and see how it sounds see if the voices come through even when they're not being read by the actors sure and that was helpful. It was like, yeah, that does sound like Wharf. Yes, that sounds like Kira. That's good. Um, and that was that was a, a fun thing to do. And it was just great because everybody there kinda got to be part of the process and uh they were at the premiere party with us when the you know the episode came out many months later. Sure. Um so yeah, I remember doing the table read. Uh I remember after the uh break session when we went out actually this would have been before the table read. Uh, when we went out, we did the break session in L.A., and then we came back, and we had picked up some swag at the Paramount uh, gift shop or whatever on our way off the lot. And we came back, John and I, with matching Paramount uh, blue Paramount Studios hats, and we went into the Wednesday lunch, both of us wearing sunglasses and our blue Paramount Studio hats, and we made a a, a very visible point of not sitting with the other guys and sitting, you know, in our own booth, like you know one uh, one row away. And the other guys were like, oh, it's like that now, is it? <laughs> and then somebody took us down a I think it was Keith who said, well, this diner must be good if truckers eat here. <laughs> uh,
0: did you at any point consider showing us what was happening on the Karema or the Hadar ships, or was that too much?
1: It was too much. Uh, they had a number. We had all these different sort of storylines going with everybody separated into different parts of the ship. Yeah. There are only so many pages. There's only so many screen minutes available. And at that time, I don't think they had really established or had wanted to establish too much mm. uh, about the Jem'Hadar. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know that they had standing sets yet for Jem'Hadar ship interiors. Okay. Okay. Sure. They, okay. They, they might have, I'd have to check, but I don't know if they did. I know that they had not established any type of particular look for the uh, Karama or their ships. And I know they did not want to spend money on a Karama ship interior because mm-hmm. uh, set construction is one of the single largest uh, costs on any episode of this type. Uh, special effects are expensive, but they are nothing compared to building sets. Sure. Sets. Cost a fortune. They take a ton of time. You don't build a set unless you absolutely have to, mm-hmm. which is why they were buying bottle shows yeah. and why this started out as a bottle pitch with everything shot on the standing defiant sets. Right. Um. So, no, at no point did we really give any thought to uh, humanizing or showing the uh, Jemadar characters, which would have made it a little more like Balance of Terror. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think the the whole point of like Balance of Terror is that it's a, a battle of wits specifically between Kirk on one side and the Romulan commander on the other and that's how they're selling it that was the whole structure of that episode was yeah. that parallel and as such uh, they were able to focus the story and it made it worthwhile to build the Romulan sets which i think they knew they were going to get some use out of again yeah. uh, you know they could redress it from Klingon sets or whatever but that was not the purpose of starship down. So I don't I think that there would have been no point to building karma or Jem'Hadar ship interiors. Yeah.
0: And at this point we're not ready to identify with the Jem'Hadar yet. They're still the sort of faceless stormtroopers of the Dominion and uh, scary. You got it. You got it. <laughs> Um, something else that I really like about this episode, uh, as we wrap up here is that it takes the time to give us a nice denouement. It's it's only natural because we want to see the results of all these storylines that we're following, but so often Trek episodes just end with, well, we fixed the problem or, oh, that's sad. And then credits and we leave. Yeah. And I like the fact that we get to go back one more time and just touch on everybody.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, I, I like the whole notion of you've got, uh, Dax getting in like one last little jab at Bashir yeah you've got uh you know uh has developed not only a taste for gambling but a flair for it (laughs) and Quark realizes he may have created a monster yeah uh you know you got the engineers uh who you know think they're gonna put one over on Worf and Worf uh has clearly settled into command mode and then best of all is just that little moment with uh it's Kira and Cisco, right, at the end, with the fact that you realize he was on some level listening to her the whole time about changing to a four-shift rotation. And then she thinks it's all work, and you know, she's been lamenting the fact that she never gets to spend time with him on a personal level. And he invites her to come to a hollow baseball game with him. Right. Yeah. And and he and he throws her a baseball hat and she puts on the baseball hat. And it ends. And this was one of those things that was in uh, my and John's draft, and John and I always loved this, was the idea of ending the episode on Cisco with his baseball and a smile. Because one of the things he and I always loved about the original series was that so many of those episodes would end with a push-in on Kirk in the command chair and a smile. Sure, yeah. That was the charm of a lot of those early TOFs episodes. We're like, I want that for, for Cisco. I want Cisco to have that Kirk moment. Yeah, so that's even how we talked about it in the room. We end on Cisco having a Kirk moment with uh, his baseball and a smile, comfortable in his chair, comfortable in his command. And they were like, that's great. That's a great moment. Uh, I am
0: somewhat grossed out by the idea, though, that Cork might have like a hot dog cart in the back where those dogs have just been in that water for weeks and weeks until Cisco asks for one.
1: Well, I mean, I th- they're probably going to be simulated by a replicator in the Suite. but if Quark is programming them, God only knows what's in those wings. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that those are 100% beef, for sure. Probably not. Those are not ballpark franks, brother.
0: If there's anything, I mean, there's probably a lot of things, and we've talked about some of your regrets, but if there's, like, one thing that you could do differently, uh, even if you could change the laws of the universe about this episode, what would it be? Ah, uh,
1: well, that's hard to say. I think... Um, Oh, I mean, obviously I wish the effects could have been better, but knowing Mm. that they were limited, I wish that I would have had a chance to go through and just suggest, uh, changing it so that the effect was that the gases were toxic rather than, uh, pressurized, Mm. making it so that the problem is that they are, you know, a combination of poison or whatever, uh, just making it clear that, you know, since we can't do, the kind of, you know, dramatic effect of water flooding in and we can't do the high pressure gas giant, uh, liquefied atmosphere that, you know, the, that I thought the story called for. Right. It would have been really important to sell the danger of this toxic atmosphere. And I think they did that to a degree, but I I think it could have been done better. Uh, alternatively, uh, I mean, there's just, there's so many little things, I guess. I, I guess maybe it would have been helpful if there had been a sense of more casualties. I feel like they got out of this light. Like, I don't remember hearing of anybody actually coming out on the other side of this dead. I think at the in the bridge scene, after
0: the bridge kind of blows up, there is one scene where somebody's like, oh, those other two extras are, are both dead. But otherwise, okay. yeah, I don't think they even had names.
1: Yeah, they, these are guys without names. And I just I feel like, you know, the death felt impersonal and distant. And there was just a uh, a sense of, uh, I don't know, I, I guess I, it needed more of a sense of impending threat. Uh, I guess uh, something about the action quotient of it just never quite felt right to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you know, but that was, again, what inspired me to write Wildfire and kind of sent me down the whole literary, uh, the whole literary path. And there's plenty of death and threat
0: coming in later seasons at DS9 as well.
1: Yeah, it's not like they shied away from it. It's just this was <laughs> this was not the time for it. They wanted a light, fun, action episode. Um, I guess it was just it was one of those moments where Das Boat is so intense. Yeah, and I was looking for that level of intensity. And the problem of course is that while well, you can be that intense when you're shooting in an actual German U-boat with a steady cam and you've got, you know, a budget of 40 or 50 million dollars. Right. Uh when you're shooting a TV episode for 2 or 3 million dollars and you've got 1 week to shoot, you know, you you get your coverage and you move on. Yeah. Um and it's not their fault. Uh you know, they they produced a pretty good episode uh in very little time and on budget and that's, you know, that 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 counts as a win. Yeah. Um, and it you know, got me and John our first uh, writing credit. And the, I, I don't know, I, I guess if I had any regrets, I have fewer regrets about this. I mean, just because it was so heavily rewritten, even though it has written by David Mack and John J. Ordover, we contributed very little to the final script on this, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. We were involved in development right up through the first draft, and then for reasons of production expediency, Someone else had to take over, because there just was no time to have us come back to L.A. to handle rewrites. If we had been based in L.A., they might have let us. Right. But we were based in New York, so it just didn't work. Yeah. Uh, ironically, it's only a Paper Moon, the Season 7 episode on which John and I share story credit. More of the work we did on our final story outline at Ron Moore's request... More of what we wrote in that outline made it onto the screen, either in terms of visuals or in terms of dialogue, <laughs> than anything we did on Starship Down. Even though we only have story credit on Paper Moon, more of that episode is ours than, uh, than not. <laughs> That's fascinating. Uh, yeah. And not to uh,
0: ruin uh, the future show where I have you come back and talk about Paper Moon, but did you always plan on having it be – Uh, Nog, uh, being injured and then, uh, and
1: convalescing? No, in fact, uh, that episode, uh, started out as a pitch that we gave at the same time we pitched Starship Down. Yeah. And the original version of the pitch, which we'll talk about in greater depth at some later time, was, again, a bottle show because we were trying to sell bottle shows. Yeah, yeah. As 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 a freelancer, that's how you make your bones, or at least that's how you did back in the 90s. You would look at the standing stats and the standing cast, and you would try to do bottle shows that would be cheap to produce. And we thought, what would be cheaper to produce than a whole episode? Shot on one stage so we pitched an episode called everybody comes to quarks. Okay, uh, which is a play on everybody comes to rick's the play on which Casablanca is based Right and the whole oh, so idea there was no, the,
0: there was no there was no Vix, of course because this is where there was no Vick. Okay. Yeah Yeah,
1: so I remember we're pitching we're, we're pitching before season four Vix doesn't exist yet Right, right. So we pitched an episode called everybody comes to quarks And the idea was that you've got multiple interleaving stories going in and out but for various reasons Quark's is the only establishment on the promenade open on that day because of various alien holidays that have all coincided. (laughs) So nothing else is open. The replomat is closed. And there's a, a, a failure going on in the station systems. The replicators are down, but the engineers, the Bajoran engineers, are all on holiday. None of them will fix it. Right. So the only place you can get anything to eat on the entire station is Quark's. Okay so everybody's in there. The place is packed, and you know you got people with days off they're celebrating the holidays. Cisco and Jake are in one of the holo suites, replaying a World Series game as members of the team you've got O'Brien and Bashir sort of holding court and doing a dart throwing, you know a, a darts tournament uh, against people from some other ship you've got uh Dax trying to you know have a a date that keeps getting interrupted with somebody uh you've got this that the other thing and Just multiple things going in and out, chaos, like an episode of Cheers in Quarks. Right. And so that's how that whole thing started. Uh, And by the time it – and they loved the original pitch. They just weren't sure where they would use it. But they loved the idea and they loved the notion of, of course, a bottle show in Quarks. Yeah. Great idea. But they said, well, put it in a folder and we'll come back to it. Mm. And they would come back to it in internal meetings that we had no idea about. Okay. Uh, and over the course of three years, they would say, well, get that folder out. What about this? What if we did this and this? They go, oh, well, that's interesting, but I'm still not sure it works. Well, write it down. They would write it down. Okay. All right, close the folder, put it back. Right. And they do this off and on for three years until finally it mutated into, well, you know what we can do? I mean, if we want to do the follow-up thing. Uh, you know, to Siege of AR 558, we got to do the whole Nog thing. Mm-hmm. That could be our bottle show in Quarks. They go, Yeah, but we spent all this money on the Vic Fontaine set. <laughs> all right. So we, so go in and change it from Quarks to Vic Fontaine. Sure. All right. All right. So we went to, All right. So what do we need now? Well, we need Mac and Ordover to rewrite the outline. Right. <laughs> and so that's how that happened. And unfortunately, once it changed from Quarks to Vic's, we lost one of the best bits I've I've never gotten it right. I consider this like the, the lost scene. One of the favorite moments from the, everybody comes to Quark's pitch is a moment where Quark is trying to, uh, do a dirty deal to buy some rare Klingon artifact that he knows he can flip for a huge profit. But if a Klingon sees him handling this thing, he's a dead man. Okay. (laughs) All right. He's got the buyer coming in any minute. And of course, that's the exact moment Worf comes in looking to have lunch. Right. So Worf comes to the counter and tries to order lunch. And Quark has got to find a way to make Worf go away without Worf getting suspicious. So we end up doing the Star Trek version of Monty Python's cheese shop sketch. Yeah. <laughs> where we go through every canonical food item ever mentioned in Star Trek. Worf tries to order everything you've ever heard of. And Quark has a, an immediate ready excuse for why Worf cannot have it. Not today, fresh out, never on a Tuesday. Sorry, the Cardassian bowls just ate the last one. Sorry, that p- pattern's not in my replicator. Uh, it's, it, it's very runny, more runny than I think you'd like. Oh, I'm sorry, it's gone off, and so on and so forth until finally, after this rapid-fire pattern for about two and a half minutes, as Worf gets angrier and angrier, he finally reaches over the counter, grabs Quark by the lapel and says, I want a bowl of guck. If I do not get Gok." I will rip out your lungs. <laughs> One ball of gock coming up. <laughs> Quark goes under the counter, comes up with the bowl, plants it in front of Worf. Worf digs in, picks up a handful of the little worms, looks at them and goes, this gock is dead. It's not dead. It's resting. <laughs> ah! Worf throws the bowl at Quark who ducks. Worf storms out. Quark goes, thought he'd never leave. <laughs> and it was the audacity of ending the cheese shop sketch using the the dead parrot sketch yeah, yeah. <laughs> as the punchline to cheese shop sketch i thought this would be an instant star trek classic moment yes fans will talk about this for as long as there are star trek fans and alas it never got made. <laughs> it is x-goc it is this is x-goc He is pushing up the, the, the ah! it has joined the, the choir the, it has joined the black fleet invisible right <laughs>
0: Well, you're you're very good at uh, pitching stories. I think you aced your class in film school at that, and a lot of your ideas are so distinctive. And I'm sure that a lot of uh, people who pitch stories have similar experiences. Now, I love Trek, and I watch every episode. But a lot of times, specific Trek episodes don't stand out in the way. Uh, or with the distinctiveness of these pitches that you bring, is it just natural for your ideas to kind of get the edges ground off
1: as they get sort of fit into a weekly TV situation? That is natural for television. Uh, Television, because it is such a collaborative medium. It is the room, uh, the individual voice, uh, especially if you're a freelancer Mm -hmm. who's not part of the room, it's very hard to preserve anything of the original voice in the finished work. Yeah. Uh, maybe the high concept, if you've got a really high concept episode, maybe that'll carry through if you're lucky. If you are able to be involved in the rewrites, you might have more of a say in how you interpret and apply the notes from the room. Sure. Uh, but the room, by its nature, is going to be a lot of people, a lot of very smart people, very talented people, all trying to find the best most narratively satisfying solution, they may not always agree. And in the end, it's going to be the showrunner who makes the determination. That's the idea. That's what we're doing. Write That. Yeah. And then even after that draft is done, the showrunner is probably going to do a final pass over the script before it goes in front of cameras, uh, which is why, you know, that that's how the shows maintain a consistent voice. The characters maintain a consistent tone It is often the showrunner who enforces that final level of editorial quality control and just precision to say, this character should sound like this. This character is supposed to sound like this. Right. And uh, so that happens. And again, the the process of a debate when you've got anywhere from six to eight or more people. Right. (laughs) uh, All very smart, very motivated in a room arguing over, you know. Well, here, I think we could do this. And someone says, well, I'm bumping against that because, you know, if we do this, then doesn't that negate that? And if we do that, doesn't that make that whole point there irrelevant? And you go, Oh, yeah, but, you know, we could reconcile that. We could we could do this. Yeah, but then that's totally ridiculous. Why would we do that? All right, well, fine. We lampshade that. No big deal. Right, you know, right. hang a lantern on it. We move on.
0: You've got a lot of uh, creators now who are like sort of writer, producer, creator, sometimes directors, guys like Alan Ball and uh, Sorkin and Matthew Weiner, who's... Vision is very specific and singular for a series. Of course, they have writer's rooms, but, you know, I'm sure they stay sort of at the forefront of what's going on to the screen. So I find with shows like that, I either like them a whole lot because I'm, you know, in sync with their vision or I don't really like those shows at all. But they're definitely less homogenized than regular TV.
1: Yeah, but I think that, you know, those are sometimes the most interesting things, the ones where you can feel that unique quality of a creator's vision just coming through the screen like uh what brian Fuller brought to pushing daisies for instance (laughs) yeah sure uh that that's a show that nobody else could have made uh it was a distillation of many of the things that were important to him as a creator yeah uh and if you you know if you respond to that you love that show and if you don't you go well what a bunch of twee bullshit (laughs) yeah (laughs) um I happen to be in the category that loves Pushing Daisies. I thought it was a beautiful work of art, heartfelt with great characters and a sort of a, a, a delightful whimsy. I can see why it might not work for other people. I'm in the camp that thinks it's a work of genius. Yeah. Now, see, now I didn't
0: like Pushing Daisies, but I did like Wonder Falls. So who there knows? You go. I, which I didn't care for. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. <laughs>
1: These things happen. Yeah, right. And and that's why and that's you know why there are different channels and different shows on because not every show works for everybody. And even if something doesn't work for me, I don't think that that means it's a bad show. I go, oh, I'm the wrong audience for this. Sure. If other people dig this, that's great. I'm glad somebody enjoys it. I don't have to be that person, but I also don't have to denigrate it. Certainly, I can just say I'm not the right guy for that.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, this is your fourth appearance on this show, meaning that you are now a lieutenant commander. Congratulations on that. Uh, Wow. I'm curious. What's the career path for the upper echelon of ships services officers? I mean, at this point, you should really be coordinating ship services on a star base or on a squadron level.
1: Well, ship services is a very specific division within Starfleet. Okay. Ship services are the people who, if you're having a VIP reception, they're the ones who set the the officer's mess, you know, and make right. sure the banquet is laid out. And ship services, things like quartermaster, uh, birthing assignments, stuff like that. Uh, I never really would th- see myself as ship services. That's not really, uh, you know, an industry I'd want to be in. I'd, I'd prefer to be in command or engineering. I think of myself as a literary engineer. Ah, okay. I see. Uh, what is the, so (laughs) Jordy is
0: what? He's Lieutenant Commander by the end of TNG, I think.
1: I think so. And we've got him up to a full commander in the books right now.
0: Sure. And I've heard some people, I've, people are divided, at least in, from what I've heard. Like some people think that, oh, he's just born and bred like an engineer and other people see his character as being, that's a step to somewhere else. Like he does have his eye on command. He is, you know, from a military family. He's good at engineering, but it doesn't, he doesn't see himself doing that forever.
1: Well, not Uh, everybody who goes into the military ends up on a command track and you can spend many years working your way up. Uh, He's a chief engineer aboard a capital ship. That's a pretty significant officer post. Uh, It doesn't tend to lead to the command track very often um, and nor should it. Uh, There are many engineering officers who are perfectly content to hit that level and say, That's the top of my field. Yeah. Now, what we have in the books at the moment, uh, you know, until we erase it, is that uh, in addition to being the chief engineer, uh, Geordi LaForge is also currently the second officer of the Enterprise. Worf is the acting executive officer, or actually not acting. He is. He is the uh, executive officer. Picard is still in command for the moment. Uh, So the current chain of command is Picard, Worf, LaForge. And then below that, below the Forge, you would probably have uh, the tactical chief, the chief of security, which would be uh, Lieutenant Aneta Shmairova. So she'd probably be fourth in uh, line of command. Okay. Uh, and so on, you know, down through the, the ranks. There's a, a pretty clear hierarchy in, in any military organization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so he, he does have command responsibilities if Picard is off the ship, as he is in collateral damage, for instance. Worf becomes the commanding officer. Jordy bumps right up to executive officer, which means he has to leave one of his deputy engineering chiefs in command of engineering because once you're XO, you've got to be on the bridge. Yeah, right, right. Now you're in the command information center. When he's second officer, when he's third in line of command and acting as chief engineer, well, then he's down in engineering, which is a great place to have your third in command because if something happens to your command information center and you lose your captain and XO – well, your second officer slash chief engineer takes over from the engineering deck. Yeah. It worked for the, the uh, old enterprise. Yeah. Worked great for Scotty. Yeah. Scotty didn't always have to be on the bridge to take over. Lieutenant
0: Commander Mac, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at, at EISD Pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individual's Facebook page, where can
1: people find you online? They can find my website at davidmack.pro. That's davidmack, M A C K.PRO. Or you can find me on Twitter at David Allen Mac. Alan is A-L-A-N-M-A-C-K.
0: And when can people expect to see Collateral Damage and the Shadow Commission?
1: Collateral Damage, my next Star Trek The Next Generation novel, which is going to be tying up storylines from the last 15 or so years of literary continuity, will be coming out on Tuesday, October 8th of this year. Early copies will be on sale at New York Comic Con. I will be at New York Comic-Con probably all four days in the Simon & Schuster Pavilion, hawking and offering autographs and inscriptions on every sold copy of Collateral Damage. So if you're going to be in New York and at New York Comic-Con this October, be sure to stop by the Simon & Schuster booth as I plan to be there and uh, that's a great way to pick up the book early before it goes officially on sale. Sure. The Shadow Commission, the uh, conclusion to my Dark Arts trilogy at Tor Books, comes out on June 9 of 2020. Uh, it got delayed. Originally, I thought it was going to be out earlier. I actually realized I needed to do a serious rewrite on it, and that uh, ended up delaying it a few months. But it's going to be a much better book for it. So look for that in June of 2020. Well, we'll be looking for
0: those, and good luck with those upcoming works. And thanks again for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And we're signing off until the next mission, Hailing Frequencies closed.